This is WTAR, Traditional Astrology Radio. My name is Chris Brennan, and today is Friday, November 11th, 2011. Uh, tonight's going to be kind of a loose show, or loosely structured show. Um, it's been a while since the last time I did one. I think the last show I did was in July, when I interviewed uh, Benjamin Dykes and Demetra George. Um, and it's actually been about a year. I took over this show from... Jackie Minkas, uh, one year ago in early November of 2010. Uh, since then, the number of shows I've done has been kind of spotty, um, basically because I've been busy with other things, and I'm still trying to get into the swing of, um, you know, what sort of format I want this show to have and how often I want to have guests versus how often I want to just uh, talk and sort of do my own thing. So, one of the things that I'm going to do most of tonight is just review some events and some things that have happened in the past year and sort of catch you up on what I've been working on, uh, what's going on in the field of traditional astrology, and um, what are some interesting areas of research I've been exploring. So, uh, I want to, first off, I want to start the show on sort of a uh, sad note, which is that uh, in August, on a- August 18th, uh, Alan White uh, passed away. Uh, Alan, some of you will remember, I interviewed him uh, for the very first show I did last December in, I think it was December 7th of 2010. Uh, Alan is a, or Alan was a longtime member and um, associate of Project Hindsight. Uh, Alan had been a big proponent of hindsight, and he was one of the people that really um, has been a, a force in, in promoting Hellenistic astrology for the past um, 15 years or so. Uh, anyway, I, I had Alan on. He, he had been sick for some time, and he finally uh, succumbed to his illness in August. Uh, I got a chance to fly out to visit him earlier this year in, I think it was March or April, uh, and we spent a few days talking and going over his chronology and going through dates in his life, and I was able to write a lot of that down and record it. Um, I actually posted an obituary for him uh, in the NCGR newsletter, and I'll post a link to that, or a a link where you can find that write-up that I did. Uh, on the Traditional Astrology Radio website, which is traditionalastrologyradio.com. Uh, In the entry for this page, you'll see the link. Uh, I think you can also access it at solsticepoint.com under the entry for Alan White. Um, anyways, one of the important things about Alan that I wish more people knew about that he doesn't get, uh, I think, enough credit for is that... Um, He actually played a a really pivotal role in the revival of Hellenistic astrology over the past 10 10 years or so. Um, Basically, there's this story um, that Demetra told me about a year ago, or a year and a half ago, where um, she, uh, the first class of Kepler College, uh, the accredited or, or school that was trying to give accredited degrees for astrology uh, in Seattle uh, opened up and had its first year of classes from 
the fall or, or summer of 2000 until the spring of 2001. And in May of 2001, they had just finished their first year, and they timed one of their uh, their symposiums to coincide with the Northwest Astrological Conference, which takes place in Seattle um, every year in May. So at this conference, um, which all of the Kepler students were attending, the first year of this really important sort of project of this serious um, four-year college for astrology had just finished its first year, and all the students who were in that class were in attendance at this conference. Well, at this conference, uh, Alan White had actually been dispatched by uh, Project Hindsight, by Robert Schmidt and Ellen Black, to go to Seattle and set up a booth uh, for Project Hindsight in order to uh, promote what they were doing and in order to sign people up for the uh, translations or the subscription service for translations that they were promoting, as well as to sell CDs and other projects just in order to help support Project Hindsight. So Alan was at that conference. He was the guy that was there running the booth and trying to promote the project and talk about Hellenistic astrology. Um, so as the story goes, as I've heard it from Demetra and a few other people, uh, one night at this conference, Alan was at the bar and he was talking to uh, a bunch of Kepler students and they were sort of all around in a, a circle or something at the bar, bar having some drinks and Alan was sort of regaling them with these stories about Hellenistic astrology. So the, the Kepler students have just finished um, basically an entire year of history classes because the first year at Kepler was entirely history uh, starting with the Mesopotamian period moving through the Hellenistic and medieval period, and then the Renaissance, and then finally the modern period. So they had just got done doing an entire year of history, so they were fully sort of conversant in the history of the tradition, but they were not very conversant in the techniques, and Alan was really um, sort of talking up the techniques of Hellenistic astrology and talking up the technical and conceptual reconstruction um, that was done by Schmidt. So uh, all of the students are apparently impressed enough or excited enough that they ask him to or encourage him to give some sort of impromptu lecture uh, right then and there that night. And they do. So they go and they find an empty... Apparently there's some other big party going on that night uh, for Norwak, but they're still able to find an empty lecture room. And Alan sets up this impromptu lecture um, on Hellenistic astrology using this this famous flip chart that he has that's written out. It's a, it's a big paper flip chart that has a bunch of diagrams and sort of notes that he has written out to give a, a broad introductory lecture on Hellenistic astrology. Uh, so Alan starts giving this lecture and the room fills up. Um, somebody told me that it was standing room only, but apparently it went over really well. It was a really uh, relatively big event or relatively significant event to the at least to the extent that once the lecture was finished all of the Kepler students uh, turned to Demetra George who was in attendance she was I think one of the only teachers that was there um, at this impromptu lecture that Ellen threw together and all the students turned to Demetra and tell her that they want 
a course on Hellenistic astrology integrated into the, the Kepler curriculum. Um, so Demetra actually takes them seriously, or she takes us seriously, and presumably she was also very impressed by this lecture because a few months later she actually um, moves out east for a few months to study Hellenistic astrology under uh, with Alan and with Robert Schmidt um, at Project Hindsight in Maryland. And I think Demetra spent uh, like three months living out there and, and studying uh, during the winter of 2001 to 2002. So by sometime in 2002, she creates the uh, first course for Hellenistic astrology at Kepler. Uh, she creates an entire uh, course or entire curriculum on the subject. Um, yeah, and then she teaches that course for several years at Kepler. Um, then in 2004, actually, at the end of 2004, I think she'd only been teaching it for a couple of years at that point, uh, I actually came along and took the course. Uh, actually, grudgingly, at the time, I really wanted to take a course. I, I was really geared towards psychological astrology, and I was actually not happy about being forced to take a, an introductory course on Hellenistic and Indian astrology at the same time. So I actually tried to fight that unsuccessfully, uh, fortunately, because I ended up really loving the course and really getting into it, obviously, after I took that first introductory course with Demetra. And uh, the rest is history. So without Alan giving that lecture, that's that impromptu lecture that night at this uh, little regional conference in Seattle in May of 2001, uh, neither Demetra nor I would ever have gotten into traditional astrology, or, or Hellenistic astrology in particular. Um, now, maybe we would have at some later point in time, that's kind of deba debatable, but certainly at the point in our points in our lives that we got into Hellenistic astrology, um, that happened as a direct result of, of Alan. So, and to whatever extent that uh, Demetra and I influence other people to subsequently take up the study of traditional astrology or of uh, Hellenistic astrology in particular, um, we'll have Alan to thank as being sort of part of the link in that chain uh, or that chain of tra the transmission of the tradition. So I just wanted to, to mention that. Uh, in remembrance of him, because uh, although some people don't know it, uh, he definitely, through that act uh, alone, if, if not some a number of other things he's done, um, he will sort of you know live on and have an influence on the tradition uh, from this point forward. So I hope people uh, remember him for that at the very least. Uh, you can go back and listen to some of his thoughts on astrology if you listen to that previous show that I did with him in December. Uh, so listen to it and let me know what you think. Okay, uh, so the next topic is, la the last time I did a show, it was Ben and Demetra and I talking about this conference that we were putting together for September, the uh, conference that was being hosted by the American Federation of Astrologers uh, on uh, titled Traditional Astrology in the 21st Century in honor of James Holden. 
Uh, so we did the conference. It took place from September 22nd to the 24th. Uh, we had an excellent electional chart, which Ben and Dimitra and I took advantage of in order to uh, initiate the conference. It was very early in the morning. We actually did it at sunrise um, on the 22nd with Virgo rising and Mercury uh, in Virgo. The rest of the chart is also sort of similarly spectacular, so we were glad that we were able to take advantage of that election. Um, but the conference itself was a success. There was a little over a hundred attendees, so the AFA was not expecting that many people. I think they were maybe expecting a hundred people or so. Uh, so we definitely doubled their expectations. And yeah, the vibe of the conference was very good. It was all entirely put together by Ben and Dimitra and myself, um, aside from an opening lecture, a uh, keynote lecture by Holden, and an opening and closing lecture that was somewhat unexpected by Stephanie Clement, um, who's the president of the AFA. Uh, but it was a great conference. Um, we got to spend a lot of time talking to Holden, and his translation of Firmicus Maternus had just come out. Uh, the AFA pushed it so that they could get it out uh, before the conference in September, and it looks really excellent. It's a huge uh, improvement over the previous translation by uh, Bram. Uh, one of the things that people don't know is that if you actually, if you read Bram's translation, which is the current sort of standard translation of Firmicus, um, she actually says that in certain areas she either just paraphrases or, or curtails some of what Firmicus is saying. She sort of cuts it down in the areas where she felt like it was getting uh, repetitive. So there's actually chunks of delineation material that's actually missing from Bram's translation of Firmicus. Um, on top of that, there's a bunch of stuff that's either mistranslated or is, um, is just wrong, or there's also insertions. For example, if you look at Bram's translation of uh, one of the early chapters where Firmicus talks about sect, um, in Bram's translation, for some reason, Mercury is said to be associated with the nocturnal sect. Uh, but if you look at the Latin critical edition, it doesn't say that at all. Mercury actually isn't mentioned anywhere in that paragraph. So for some reason, Bram um, just inserted Mercury as a nocturnal planet for some unknown reason. Uh, there's a bunch of mistakes like that in that translation. And this is one of the reasons why uh, Holden's uh, translation, which is only the second English translation ever, um, is very welcome and is very, uh, I'm very glad to have it. Um, Holden has also taken into account some additional um, or, or more recent critical editions and other scholarship that, uh, for, for the manuscripts of Firmicus that's taken place or, or that wasn't taken into account by Bram or in Bram's translation. So that's important. He also provides a, a lot of extensive footnotes and some commentary, uh, which is very useful, uh, especially in noting sometimes uh, manuscript variations in the text. That's one thing that you always have to be uh, pay attention to, is that sometimes there are important variations of the manuscripts. And for the most part, even when you're working with a critical edition of a text, which is um, 
basically uh, an attempt to reconstruct what the editors think the original version of the text is. So um, the standard critical edition of Firmicus was put together in the early 20th century by uh, a, a few European scholars where they got together all of the existing manuscripts of Firmicus and compared them together, and then they tried to reconstruct what the original text was. This is known as making a, a critical edition. So um, when you make a critical edition, they will put their reconstruction of what they think the original text was in the sort of body, but then in the footnotes they'll note all of the manuscript variations, or um, sometimes where one manuscript disagrees with what their reconstruction says, uh, they'll note that. Um, and sometimes this can be a big deal. There's a couple of places in Firmicus, uh, for example, there's some stuff where he's talking about the lots, uh, in one of the chapters on the lots, where some of the manuscript variations become a really big deal. Um, so the fact that Holden actually pays more attention to this and notes the manuscript variations is actually very important, um, and it, it represents a big contribution to our ability to study Firmicus. If you don't know Latin, um, and your ability to study Firmicus and to get a sense of what the text says and to be able to make statements a little bit more confidently than you could if you were just reading Bram's translation. Uh, so yeah, Firmicus is a big deal, uh, and I'm very happy to have Holden's translation, and I'm still working on reading through it, because it's actually a huge, uh, thick book. It's, I think, aside from Valens, uh, Firmicus is one of the longest, or the longest, existing uh, text that survived from the Hellenistic tradition. So, um, yes... That, that's what happened. So at the conference, we talked to Holden a bit. There were some great parties. Uh, there were a lot of good... Uh, all of the attendees were very cool. I got to meet some interesting people. Um, as far as the structure of the conference goes, uh, it was just divided up between uh, the three of us, me and Ben and Demetra. And uh, one of the things that I was really excited about or happy about was the way that some of the panels went. Um, because we had a few different panels on specific topics where the three of us would kind of engage each other and um, explore some topics that otherwise might not get a lot of play at, at mainstream conferences. So we had a panel on the history of astrology, uh, of traditional astrology. We had a panel on uh, the transmission of texts where the three of us actually talked about the transmission of specific uh, traditional texts in order to sort of demonstrate how how sometimes these manuscript histories uh, work. Uh, so my my text that I focused on was uh, Dorotheus of Sidon, and I uh, talked about um, basically the origin of the text and what it was originally what. Uh, it originally was, which was basically an instructional poem in Greek uh, on Hellenistic astrology, but then how that text was transmitted, that um, in addition to the Greek transmission, we had a uh, translation from Greek into Persian, and then the Persian translation was eventually translated into Arabic, and so now, uh, even though we've lost, for the most part, the majority of the Greek version of Dorotheus, 
the version that did survive is this Arabic translation of the Persian, uh, which is itself a translation of the Greek. Um, and I talked about some of the issues that we have in dealing with that text because it's uh, two or three times removed from its original language, um, being basically, I, I like to call it, um, to, to really emphasize the point, it's an English translation of a Arabic translation of a Persian translation of a Greek work that was originally written in the form of a poem. So that gives you some brief idea that you know there might be some problems when you're dealing with uh, this text because uh, you know they did not just pass it down. Um, it, it did not get. I think I said at the conference that they didn't just. Uh, email this text to us 2,000 years ago, and it came to us today in the perfect, in some sort of perfect form or perfect translation. But in fact, uh, there was a lot of stuff that fell out of the text during the course of the transmission. There was other stuff that was added in at certain points, um, and there are mistakes in the text. So when you deal with uh, Dorotheus in particular, although Dorotheus is just a good example of the broader phenomena of working with ancient astrological texts, you have to be careful and you have to um, have a certain amount of awareness of where the text is coming from and uh, what you have to pay attention to when you're trying to uh, learn something from it. So that was one of the panels, the transmission panel. Um, we also had, obviously, a number of lectures. The first day was devoted to basic concepts. So uh, we divided the four major areas of basic concepts in a horoscope or in a chart uh, between the three of us. So one of us did planets, one of us did signs, uh, one of us did houses, and one of us did aspects. Uh, and that was basically the first day. So. Uh, I, I was very excited about that first day, my, my presentation on the first day, because I actually got to present um, the greater part of my, or part of my reconstruction of the original Hellenistic aspect doctrine, which I actually just completed for the first time in June of this year, and I recorded a complete um, seven and a half hour lecture uh, on this original Hellenistic aspect doctrine reconstruction for my um, online course on Hellenistic astrology. Um, but at the conference, I actually presented this material uh, publicly for the first time, this reconstruction. So uh, the reconstruction is basically, um, if you read any translations of Hellenistic astrological texts, uh, you will see them using if you read like a literal translation of these texts, you'll see them using a bunch of technical terms which are not very familiar to the modern re reader um, because we don't have those technical terms anymore. And usually the authors, when you read a Hellenistic text, they will take it for granted that the reader knows the technical terminology that they're using. So when they say uh, witnessing or when they say uh, striking with a ray, or overcoming, or um, enclosure, or uh, spear bearing, or bodyguarding, 
they just sort of assume that you know what these terms mean. But for most people, most modern astrologers, obviously 2,000 years later, we don't know what those me terms mean unless we've read some sort of um, guide that tells us. Uh, with many of the terms, if you just tried to infer what is meant by those terms, or, or if you tried to sort of backform it from uh, just the delineation text, it's very difficult. But uh, luckily, there was this text that was written probably sometime around the first century by an author known as Antiochus of Athens, who wrote a book of definitions of basic technical concepts, where he just went through uh, somewhat systematically and defined each of the, basically defined all of the major technical terminology of Hellenistic astrology, which itself basically became or was the core technical terminology of all subsequent Western astrology. Uh, almost all of our technical terms uh, derived from this original technical terminology uh, in the Hellenistic tradition. So Antiochus wrote a book of definitions where uh, all of these terms are explicitly defined. Um, unfortunately, Antiochus's text did not survive. It wasn't transmitted uh, in, in its entirety over the past 2,000 years. Instead, what we have is three later versions of Antiochus's text. We have a Byzantine, uh, a Byzantine summary of Antiochus, so some, some um, scribe, basically, or some astrologer uh, in the probably medieval period or maybe earlier, uh, went through and basically paraphrased most of Antiochus's definitions. Um, but unfortunately, he was doing it kind of sloppily in places. Um, so the grammar isn't very good. There's some things missing, and um, it breaks off about just a little ways into the second book. So it's not even a complete paraphrase of Antiochus's entire text. So we have that version. We have another version of Antiochus um, by the third century Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, who wrote an introduction to Ptolemy's uh, Tetrabiblos. And in this introduction, Porphyry took a bunch of Antiochus's definitions and sort of appended them to his introduction. Um, this text is in pretty good shape, although uh, it's not complete also, and it also has interpolations from uh, a medieval astrologer from the 8th or 9th century. So there's stuff that's been inserted into it, so you have to be careful not to assume that those insertions are genuinely from Antiochus or from Porphyry. Uh, then there's a third version of the Antiochus definitions that comes from Rhetorius. Rhetorius took a bunch of the definitions and included them in his large compendium, that he wrote sometime in the early 6th or early 7th century. Um, but by the time of Rhetorius, uh, not only had the tradition changed a bit, or it changed pretty uh, substantially, so that some of the definitions of certain technical terms were being used differently, but even um, Rhetorius, in his attempt to, to sort of uh, convey the definitions. He can, he he conveys many of them differently. He rewrites some of them, um, and it's not clear if it's because he was receiving them differently, 
uh, or if he understood them differently, or sometimes it's almost like he's trying to rewrite them so that they make more sense. Uh, I almost think that that's what he was trying to do with, for example, the definition of paralogue, which uh, I'm not going to go into now. But So anyway, so we have these three different versions of this original book of Antiochus. We lost the original version of, de of the definitions, but we have these three later versions from the summary, uh, from Porphyry, and from Rhetorius. And all of them have their own problems. Um, even when the three of them retain the same definition, so for example, they all have a definition of, um, I think, striking with a ray, uh, they don't necessarily have the same definition. So there'll be slight variations if you compare the three different versions of the same definition. Uh, sometimes two of them agree with each other, sometimes uh, all three of them agree, and sometimes none of them agree with each other. So um, a couple years ago, uh, Robert Schmidt was the first person who attempted to reconstruct the original set of definitions from Antiochus based on a comparison of all three of these different versions of Antiochus's definitions that have survived, uh, and he published that um, reconstruction in uh, the spring of 2009 as, I think it was titled, Definitions and Foundations. Um, and that was a really huge, sort of monumental uh, piece of um, astrological scholarship. Um, and it was very complex. Uh, it was very complicated, even for people who are familiar with the subject and who are conversant in all the Hellenistic authors and the terminology and everything else. Um, it was still very difficult to read. For those who are not familiar with it, it was almost impossible, and I know a lot of people's eyes glazed over, and many people didn't realize the significance of what Schmidt was attempting to do with that reconstruction. Um, even fewer people were capable of judging whether or not his reconstruction was correct. Um, because like I said before, many times the different definitions disagree. So there's a certain point uh, where with some of the definitions you have to make a judgment call or you do actually have to infer things or to reconstruct what the original definition was to, to sort of take the pieces and put them together in order to try and create a, a complete picture of what the orig original set of definitions must have been uh, in this lost text. So Schmidt attempted to do that. Uh, what he came up with was a very complicated, um, almost convoluted um, reconstruction, which, which was impressive and which was very intriguing but it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't immediately clear if it was correct, because although uh, although his uh, reconstruction was kind of compelling and it raised some interesting practical questions about uh, basic techniques, like just basic things, particularly with respect to the aspect doctrine, since that's the part of the definitions that was the most important, um, because the Hellenistic astrologers did have some sort of complex aspect doctrine, but um, 
but it's very difficult in the Antiochus definitions, or it's somewhat difficult to fully uh, piece together what that complex aspect doctrine was. Uh, Schmidt basically put together this really highly complex aspect doctrine that had to do with um, phase relationships between planets or, or between their synodic cycles and had to do with uh, distinctions having to do with right and left and the perfection of aspects while planets are in the same signs as being a requirement for one of the basic definitions of aspecting. Um, he had a lot of stuff. Uh, it was a very complicated reconstruction, but the problem with his reconstruction is that sometimes it seemed to me and to a few other people that I talked to about it to be um, almost as if he was reading more into the text than it called for. And part of this was due to his uh, belief that some of the doctrines were embedded in the text or were obscured deliberately in order to... Um, in order to keep the material hidden in some way. Um, anyway, so, so Schmidt came up with this highly complex aspect doctrine, um, but I didn't know, and, and Demetra didn't know, and Ben didn't know, and many of us didn't fully know if Schmidt was correct in his reconstruction. So a year ago, Ben and Demetra and I got together and we worked on... Uh, Demetra produced... Uh, a new translation of the relevant definitions from Antiochus that dealt with the aspect doctrine, and we worked together on those definitions and coming to our own uh, unique understanding of them. So we, we tried to start from square one and to try and do basically the same process that Schmidt went through in comparing all the definitions together and trying to reconstruct the originals. Um, but we tried to do that process on our own to see if we would come to the same conclusion that Schmidt did, and in the end, uh, we didn't. Um, I think by the time we were finished with our our uh, week-long study session together in Oregon last August, we, we definitely realized that we had come to a very con different conclusion about what the fundamental aspect doctrine was in Hellenistic astrology uh, than, than Schmidt did. Um, but it took a few more months after that point uh, into the early part of this year. I continued working on the reconstruction until I finally felt like I had it and I understood um, what the original aspect doctrine was. And it was still a highly complex um, aspect doctrine. They had both, well, it's true that they did have sign-based aspects, uh, and there's actually a very interesting rationale for sign-based aspects that has to do with the affinity between signs, uh, the affinity between the properties uh, between the signs, such as gender and element and modality. Uh, and there's a sort of philosophical rationale there. They also had a very complex degree-based aspect doctrine um, that had to do with applications and separations and uh, aspects that were inferior versus uh, superior, and um, a number of other things. So it was actually a very complex aspect doctrine, but it wasn't quite as complex as or, or as convoluted as Schmidt's reconstruction of it was. Um, 
so I finished that in June uh, and recorded. It took an entire seven and a half hour lecture to lay it all out, uh, but I feel I felt and I still feel very confident in that reconstruction, and I think that I got it right. Um, and I think that it's more true to the texts, and it's more true to when you first read the texts and read what they seem to be saying. I think that my reconstruction and the reconstruction I did with Ben and Demetra is more true to what the text says, but it also has some interesting implications, or there were some interesting um, points of interpretation, uh, one of which I'm still working out the full implications. Uh, the most interesting thing is that there's this one definition, which is the definition of uh, maltreatment. And maltreatment is a special set of seven conditions, which um, seven conditions which are capable of uh, corrupting or uh, fully debilitating in the most extreme sense possible. Uh, a significator or a planet in a chart and rendering that significator um, fully, let's say, afflicted, to use the more modern term. These seven conditions of maltreatment are kind of interesting because we're familiar with some of them, but some of them um, were not. Uh, one of the ones that was interesting for me is that and this is a point where my reconstruction differs from Schmidt, and I'm interested to hear what other astrologers think of this, but basically one of the definitions of maltreatment is when a planet is uh, in an adherence with a malefic. Now, adherence is defined elsewhere in the Antiochus definitions as an applying conjunction within three degrees. So one of the definitions of mal maltreatment or affliction is being in an applying conjunction with the malefic within three degrees. Um, so the, the question here is, does that mean that you have a malefic that is applying to another planet? So the malefic has to apply to the other planet? Or does that mean that the plan another planet has to apply to the malefic? So basically, do you need a faster-moving malefic applying to a slower-moving planet? Or do you need a... Um, a faster-moving planet applying to a slower-moving malefic. Uh, in Schmidt's reconstruction, it's actually... And this is a problem, because this can't be worked out purely on textual grounds. Um, my understanding of the three texts is that one text seems to indicate that it, it goes one way, another text seems to indicate that it goes another way, and the third text can be interpreted to go either way. So, so it's not something that can fully be worked out on textual grounds alone. Um, anyway, so in Schmidt's Reconstruction, he says that it's a malefic that has to apply to a planet in order for the planet to be maltreated. Uh, in my Reconstruction, it's actually the opposite. Uh, the way I understand this definition is that it is that maltreatment by adherence occurs when a faster-moving planet applies to a slower-moving malefic. Um, now, the problem with Schmidt's argument is that if it has to be the malefic applying to the planet, then 
that will that will never happen for in the vast majority of cases because the malefics are slower than almost all the other planets. So that's definitely true in the case of Saturn. So because Saturn is so slow, is the slowest of the visible planets, there'll never be any situation where Saturn can apply to another planet. So basically it would render that definition of maltreatment or affliction as being completely pointless. Um, however, if it is, if my reconstruction is correct and it's a planet applying to a malefic, uh, then that means that every planet, every visible planet can be uh, afflicted or maltreated by Saturn because all of them are fast enough to run into Saturn. On the other hand, um, there's certain combinations, like most of the planets can be afflicted by Mars because most of them can apply to Mars, but Jupiter, for example, is so slow that it cannot apply to a conjunction with Mars on its own. It's not fast enough to do so. So that means that, at least according to adherence, according to a conjunction, that uh, Mars is incapable of afflicting or maltreating Jupiter. So it creates some interesting um, sort of complexities when you start thinking about these notions of application and separation and which planet is applying to which and which planet is the faster moving planet versus the slower moving planet and so on and so forth. Um, there's a bunch of other little nuances like that when it comes to these complex definitions of uh, maltreatment and its uh, other the other rule that goes hand in hand, which is bonification, which is the set of conditions, which are the seven set of conditions in my reconstruction, where planets are able to have their significations affirmed um, rather than the other seven conditions of maltreatment where the significations of planets are negated. Um, anyway, so uh, I'm very excited about that reconstruction, and this puts, it's sort of the final leg of something that I've been working on for for several years now, since I uh, first showed up at Project Hindsight, and Robert Schmidt was working on that reconstruction on his own, and, and I became familiar with what he was trying to do there. Um, so yeah, so I presented that lecture at... Uh, for the first time at the conference, and that was a portion of the larger lecture that's available in my course. Um, and I think in the next few months, uh, Demetra and I are going to work on trying to finish her translations of the aspect definitions and writing a commentary on that, and then hopefully publishing that sometime soon. So uh, look forward, or, or keep an eye out for that. Um, what else happened at the conference? I guess um, I guess that's it for the conference. Uh, I gave a talk on horary uh, and zodiac releasing. Dimitri gave a talk on um, direct timing by planetary periods and essential times, and Ben gave a talk on solar returns and annual perfections. I believe this was all in the second day. So the first day was basic techniques. The second day was uh, advanced timing concepts. So the conference was a huge success. Um, it was a success not just for traditional astrology, but also for the AFA. I mean, the AFA really uh, put on a, a good uh, conference, a well-organized conference, and I have to give a hand 
give them a hand for doing that because I think it definitely puts the AFA back on the map when it comes to hosting astrological conferences. Um, and it was also a big turning point, I think, for the history of traditional astrology. Um, I think that traditional astrology has been doing rather well for the past couple of decades in the UK because uh, they had kind of a head start with the, the Lilly movement that started in the mid-1980s uh, with Olivia Barclay and uh, Jeffrey Cornelius. But uh, here in the U.S., I don't think that the traditional movement has been as strong or robust. I mean, there was some, there's some to some extent, it was in the mid-90s. It was getting there with Project Hindsight and a lot of the um, excitement and the steam that was built up over that. But a lot of that was lost, or, or I mean, not completely lost, but there was a lot of fragmentation of that when Project Hindsight split up, uh, when Hand left, and when Zoller left um, during the later part of the 90s and early 2000s. And then, even more recently, Project Hindsight was coming back, but now um, they've become a little bit more obscure again in the past year or two. Um, it feels like there's been a lot more fragmentation and that traditional astrology hasn't fully caught on yet as a sort of mainstream um, pursuit or, or mainstream what group or, or tradition or, um, uh, I don't know, just sort of astrological group like, like Indian astrology is. The Indian astrologers have their own conferences and they have their own schools or like the evolutionary astrologers who also have their own conferences and get-togethers and have their own schools and certification programs. It's not really... Uh, it, it doesn't strike me that it's really the same for traditional astrology in North America yet, but I think after this conference we're starting to see that happen, that I, I can really see now for the first time in the next five to ten years traditional astrology becoming more of a... Uh, force in the astrological community. Uh, so I think that conference will be a turning point uh, in that. And we definitely, I think, um, inspired a lot of people to go out and start working with the tradition and focusing on the tradition and uh, uh, sort of taking it to the next level. So that was the conference, um, but aside from that, I obviously I um, haven't been doing a lot of shows this year. I did the interview with Alan. I did the interview with Zoller, uh, Robert Zoller. I did an interview with Austin, uh, Ben, and then I did the interview with Demetra and Ben together in July. But that's pretty much all I've done interview-wise when it comes to this show for the past year, uh, and I apologize for that. Uh, I've basically been working on a lot of other stuff, such as the Antiochus Aspect Doctrine that I just spent a while talking about. Um, I've also been doing a lot of work on other Hellenistic, uh, other areas of Hellenistic astrology, because uh, I'm trying to basically get my book together that I've been working on for several years now and get that published, but it's forced me to really um, spend some time focusing on uh, specific areas. Um, one of those areas, I spent a few months doing a translation of uh, working on my Greek and doing a translation of 
uh, chapter one of Vedius Valens, uh, the significations of the planets, and exploring uh, the different interpretations of each of those significations. Because uh, if you compare different translations of book one of Valens, you'll see that every single translator uh, comes to almost every other word of the significations of the planets in that first chapter of Valens can be interpreted in different ways. And sometimes you have to make a judgment call in order to try and decide what you think Valens actually meant. So I actually worked on a translation where I um, gave a single translation, the body of the text, explaining what it probably meant or what I thought it meant primarily, but then listing in footnotes all of the different possible interpretations for each signification so that you can sort of get the full range of, of meaning that seems to be implied by the Greek term. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time working on that, just those significations of the planets for Valens. Um, I also spent a lot of time, I spent a, a month or two working on the doctrine of the four elements uh, earth, air, fire, and water, and their association with the signs of the zodiac. So, uh, most people don't know this, but there's a big issue there uh, from a traditional standpoint. There's an issue in the tradition that I don't think a lot of people have fully wrestled with yet. And the issue is, is basically this, that um, the majority of Hellenistic astrologers whose works have survived um, don't mention or talk about the four elements, the four traditional elements, within the context of the signs. Uh, they don't seem to associate the elements with the triplicities uh, at all. So if you pick up Ptolemy or uh, Firmicus, for the most part, or Manilius or, um, or Dorotheus, uh, and read their texts, you'll, you'll read the sections where they're talking about um, modality or, or quadruplicities like uh, cardinal fixed or mutable or they're talking about the gender of the signs or they're talking about the domicile rulerships or what have you um, when you read that basically you'll, you'll see all those qualities they associate with the signs and something that's conspicuously missing is the elements um, earth, air, and earth, air, fire, and water now, they do seem to associate the triplicities with certain directions, like north, south, east, and west, but Ptolemy and some of the other Hellenistic astrologers never uh, talk about the elements within that context. The first author who seems to talk about them is uh, Vadius Valens, and he's one of the only Hellenistic astrologers that uh, explicitly and, and somewhat extensively talks about the the four elements in connection with the triplicities. Um, but he does so in such a sort of nonchalant way that it seems like he's not just innovating the doctrine. He's obviously getting it from somewhere, but um, it's not clear where because he's really our first source for that doctrine, and he's already as late as the mid-2nd century. So... The problem with that is that Valens, when he talks about the elements, um, he attributes them uh, qual certain qualities which are derived from or, or which were given to them by the Stoics. 
Um, and this is the way he talks about the qualities. He says that fire is hot, uh, air is cold, water is moist or wet, and earth is dry. So those are the four qualities, uh, hot, cold, wet, and dry. So Aristotle talked about the four qualities, and the four qualities have been talked about uh, for centuries up to that point, but there was a disagreement uh, between the philosophical schools. Aristotle originally said that, um, he said that fire was hot and water was cold, that water was the uh, the, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum from fire because of those qualities, because fire was hot and water was cold. And then for Aristotle, air was wet or moist and earth was uh, dry. So that's the way Aristotle outlined the qualities in uh, on, on coming to be or on generation and corruption. And most, that's the way that all uh, Aristotelian, or, or at least later Aristotelian um, philosophers talked about the qualities. But the problem is that the Stoics, in let's say just a few generations after Aristotle, uh, did not follow him in that. The, the Stoics had an alternate approach where they said that, uh, like Valens, that uh, fire is hot air is cold, uh, water is wet, and earth is dry. Um, so it's that Stoic model that was different from Aristotle's model that seems to be adopted by the astrologers, specifically by Valens and by whoever Valens was drawing on in the second century. But what people don't realize is that those... Um, elemental assignments that we have uh, associated with the signs are explicitly stoic in context because of the way that they're assigned uh, to the different signs in the zodiac. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, if you look at the elemental assignments, uh, fire signs, the fire signs are always opposed to the air signs whereas the water signs are always opposed to the earth signs. And the reason for this is because for the Stoics, uh, the opposite of, for example, fire uh, should be, which is hot, should be air, which is for the Stoics cold. So that's why the fire signs are opposite to the air signs in the zodiac. On the other hand, for the Stoics, water is wet and it's opposite uh, or the contrary quality, is the dryness of earth. So that's why all of the uh, earth signs are opposite to water signs in the zodiac. Um, this, is, this is really important because this is one of the... Well, for me it's important because it's one of the doctrines I can point to to show that Stoicism, uh, the philosophy of Stoicism, had an explicit... Uh, impact, or, or apparently what was apparently Stoicism, although there were, there were some people in Aristotle's school, some of his students, like Theophrastus, also adopted this model, which may have been the reasons why the Stoics uh, followed it and 
disagreed with what appears to be Aristotle's uh, teaching in the first place. But I think this this is one doctrine that I can point to as giving some sort of explicit evidence for the influence of the Stoic of Stoic philosophy on uh, the development of Hellenistic astrology. Uh, the only question is basically when this doctrine got incorporated and why some of the astrologers don't aren't aware of it or don't incorporate it. Um, I can understand why Ptolemy might not incorporate it because Ptolemy seems to have more of an affinity for Aristotle and therefore he wouldn't necessarily want to adopt this other Stoic model uh, of associating the elements with the signs because it would have been in conflict with the Aristotelian model. And that's actually my main point here. That's the main issue that I was working on for uh, a month or so over the past year, which is that um, Ptolemy's, at some point in the medieval period, basically uh, the temperament doctrine that was developed by Ptolemy and uh, Galen uh, was sort of fully developed into medical astrology, specifically focusing on the temperament theory that um, each person has a sort of predominance of uh, one out of four temperaments, and that the temperaments or a person's temperament is uh, based partially on the influence of the planets and based on their, their birth chart. So a person's predispositions and their personality and their characteristics and everything else is uh, influenced by their temperament or is denoted by their temperament. Um, anyway, but the, the problem here basically is that um, some people associate the Aristotelian qualities with the four elements. But basically what I want to point out at this point is that that does not work um, within this context because the, the way that the elements are assigned in the zodiac only makes sense within a Stoic context. And so if you want to use the four elements as they're instituted, as they've been instituted for uh, 1800 years now, you have to use them in a Stoic context because uh, they aren't set up in um, they aren't set up in a different way. They're not set up in an Aristotelian way. It, it, basically, if you wanted to use them in an Aristotelian context, you would have to reassign the elements so that uh, instead of the air signs being opposite to the fire signs, you would need to put the water signs uh, in opposition to the fire signs and you would need to put the uh, air signs in opposition to the earth signs. Now, I can't really see anyone advocating that, or actually doing that, but if you're not going to do that, then basically you need to be very careful about just applying or assuming that the Aristotelian qualities are appropriate, at least when you're applying them to the signs of the zodiac. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of a complicated issue, and that was kind of a, a 
uh, sort of poor presentation of it, but some of you will sort of understand that if you're a little bit familiar with the doctrine of temperaments. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to, I think I'll probably publish a paper or something on this in order to really emphasize this issue and start this discussion, because this is this is actually an inconsistency in the tradition. This is a problem that comes up in the tradition uh, sometime between the Hellenistic and the medieval period, and it's something that needs to be dealt with because it's actually a serious, it could potentially be a serious um, practical and conceptual issue uh, in the practice of traditional astrology in the modern period if people are taking the Aristotelian qualities and um, applying them to the elements as they're currently assigned to the signs of the zodiac, um, then, then somebody could make an argument that you're doing something that is conceptually inconsistent and inconsistent with both the philosophy of Aristotle and with the philosophy of the Stoics. So it, it just doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, so if anyone wants to talk about that, you can post comments uh, in the comments section for this article uh, on the traditionalastrologyradio.com uh, website. Uh, so that's one issue that I was working with a lot uh, over the past year and I've been trying to hammer out. Uh, I also spent a couple of months working on the topic of the ruler or the master of the nativity, uh, as I call it. Uh, this was a pretty important doctrine in Hellenistic astrology. Uh, some of it got passed off into the medieval tradition, I think, with concepts like the the Almutin of the figure, I think is what Zoller calls it. Uh, I think he uses the Latin term, actually, but it basically just means the uh, predominator of the nativity. But uh, the Hellenistic astrologers called it the master of the nativity. This is the, the ruler of the entire chart. And uh, the research that I did on this seems to indicate that this doctrine goes back to at least uh, Nechepso and Petasiris. And Valens actually has a, a quote from Petasiris where Petasiris is talking about the master of the nativity. And he's talking about it as like this, this single planet that can be identified in the chart that pertains to the native's entire life and somehow uh, influences almost every aspect of the native's life and their their very their being. Um, so Petasiris, one of these, these these foundational figures in the tradition, uh, definitely talked about and perhaps was the original uh, person or, or figure who outlined this doctrine. Um, Valens actually criticizes Petasiris for putting too much emphasis on the doctrine of the master of the nativity, saying, uh, Valens says, how can one planet indicate uh, so much for so many different areas of the native's life? How can, it in how can it be that important? And Valens says that instead we should think that there are many different rulers of the nativity, or different rulers that pertain to different topics, rather than uh, Petasiris's insistence that there there can be this one planet that dominates the entire chart. Um, so my my project was to go through and basically compare every single calculation, every single existing 
treatment of how to determine the master of the nativity in the Hellenistic tradition. Um, and I did that, and I did it really comprehensively, and I was really interested and impressed with the results. Um, some of it required a little bit of reconstruction. For example, the master of the nativity is dealt with in Antiochus and Porphyry uh, very briefly, but there's some interpretive issues there. Um, there's also some issues where Ptolemy doesn't fully deal with the subject because um, it's kind of complicated because it's tied into the length of life treatment uh, because the length of life treatment involves one of the planets that's usually one of the key um, uh, potential candidates for the master of the nativity which is the bound lord of the predominator so the the predominator is usually one of the luminaries uh, if it is well placed in the chart uh, and by well placed usually they mean angular and of the sect in favor but there's a whole complicated set of rules basically for de determining the predominator and this is the same as in the medieval tradition the Almutin um, I think Ben has a whole thing about this in some of his recent books on uh, some of the recent Persian nativities books where he points out that um, I think he uses the translation of Almutin and he says that it actually means victor uh, so victor or uh, predominator is basically the meaning of this term Anyway, so the predominator or the Almutin is first you have to determine this planet. But this, this planet is not the master of the nativity. The uh, predominator is the planet that is capable of designating the master of the nativity. And in some of the calculations, the master of the nativity is the bound lord of the predominator. Um, but there's other calculations for determining it. There's some in which it's the domicile lord, the planet that rules the predominator. It's the domicile lord of the sign of the predominator. Um, and there's a few different variations. So uh, this technique gets incorporated into the length of life treatment. Um, and there's this whole history that I sort of worked out of how uh, the identification of this planet, the master of the nativity, sort of developed over the course of the tradition. It's very sort of long and interesting. Um, one of the things that's weird is how it changes after Ptolemy, because Ptolemy doesn't seem to really like this doctrine of the master of the nativity, but he does have part of it because he does have the length of life technique, and in the length of life technique he does require that you find the predominator, but he introduces this interesting set of rules where you're basically counting up dignities in a way. It's an early version of the medieval doctrine of counting up dignities. And after Ptolemy, after the second century, a lot of people end up changing their approach to calculating the master of the nativity, and it sort of becomes, they sort of merge some of the earlier approaches to that subject with the approach that Ptolemy advocated in counting up dignities in order to see, in order to find the planet that was the most dignified or had the most counts of dignity um, 
according to his method, such as domicile, exaltation, bound, or, or what have you. Um, so by the later part of the tradition, it becomes like the strongest planet in the chart. If by strongest planet, we mean the planet that has the most dignities, uh, most counts of dignity. But earlier in the tradition, prior to Ptolemy, it was not necessarily just that. Uh, the planet did not necessarily have to be strong per se. Uh, it, it could be not very well placed and still be the ruler of the nativity. Um, it would just indicate certain things about the native's life. Uh, anyway, but this doctrine was very important because we have some brief references to it by Porphyry and some of his philosophical writings where he, he actually explicitly says that some people or some astrologers use the master of the nativity in order to find or determine the native's uh, guardian daimon or guardian spirit. Um, so there was a specific purpose for this doctrine. Um, and it actually becomes interesting the way that that happens, or the way that that's described, because other philosophers like Plotinus talk about how the guardian daimon influences and has this huge effect on the life and on shaping the life and on the personality and on enforcing the native's fate in a sense. Um, and because of this, you can kind of, or because of that notion that the uh, something the Neoplatonists had that the guardian spirit was there to enforce the natives. Uh, fate or their destiny and to kind of influence their personality and influence their decisions, um, you can kind of understand why they might associate it with a specific planet. What it becomes is if you have, let's say, Mars as the master of your nativity, um, then you have this planet that's this planet or this spirit or, or something that's associated with this planet that's constantly um, egging you on and pushing you in a certain direction. Let's say if it's Mars and Mars is poorly placed, it's pushing you in order uh, in a direction of being, um, you know, assertive or aggressive or uh, violent or what have you. Um, whereas Saturn might be pushing you in a much different direction. Uh, so, so it's interesting that this doctrine of identifying the guardian spirit becomes associated with this notion of identifying the master of the nativity. And there's some other interesting discussion in Iamblichus, um, another Neoplatonist, where he actually says that the purpose of finding or identifying the master of the nativity is to uh, do some sort of propitiation ritual in order to uh, ask or make a request to your guardian spirit to sort of get it on your side and to um, sort of make a request to it in order to break free of your own fate and to sort of liberate yourself from, uh, I guess, from your destiny or from your fate, which up until that point, the guardian spirit or the gu guardian daimon is supposed to be an enforcer of or someone who's who, who's forcing you to, to stick to that. 
So there's some really interesting um, philosophical and uh, metaphysical background behind this doctrine, but it's very much rooted in practical techniques. I mean, the Hellenistic astrologers had uh, some practical methods, some concrete methods for determining this important uh, planet in the chart. And that's one of the things that I was very much focused on in the past year, which led me to uh, neglect other things such as this show. So hopefully I'll be able to maybe do a separate show at some point to sort of expand on that topic and actually talk about some of the different um, some of the different algorithms for determining the master of the nativity. Um, but for now, I think I've been going for about an hour and 15 minutes with this show, so I think I'll start to wrap it up. Um, I am going to be giving a lecture uh, and a workshop in San Francisco next week, uh, which will be, I guess the lecture is on November 17th, 2011. Uh, in San Francisco. So if you're in the area, please stop by. I'm actually going to be giving a lecture on... Um, they actually wanted me to give a lecture on the outer planets, and so the, the only lecture that I, I really have related to that topic that I could give was this lecture that I've done before on the Uranus-Neptune cycle and its relationship to the history of astrology, and specifically the development of the tradition. Um, something I noticed several years ago um, when I was studying the history of astrology is that about every 200 years when Uranus and Neptune uh, form a conjunction, there is always this... First, there's a transmission of the older traditions, so these translation projects spout, uh, sprout up, and the astrologers all of a sudden become... Uh, they, they start refamiliarizing themselves with their tradition. So all of a sudden there's always this revival of traditional astrology around the Uranus-Neptune conjunctions, whatever you know constitutes traditional astrology at that point in time. Um, but what happens is, so at these conjunctions there's a revival of traditional astrology, but then the older astrology at that point then gets merged or synthesized with whatever the prevailing tradition or paradigm is at that point. So there's this kind of revival, and then there's this synthesis, and it occurs about every 200 years. And every every major tradition of astrology uh, over the past two or 3,000 years has um, been initiated under one of these conjunctions. So that's that includes the Hellenistic tradition, that includes the early medieval tradition in the 8th century, that includes the uh, European revival in the 12th century, that includes the uh, the last flourishing of astrology in England uh, with the Lily people in the 1650s, um, and that more recently includes the traditional revival uh, in the mid-90s surrounding Project Hindsight, but also uh, some other movements that occurred more recently, and we're still uh, in the midst of that because we're still coming out of that conjunction, and the effects of it are still being felt and are still developing because now we have this huge 
revival of traditional astrology, but um, or, or we're in the process of having this revival of traditional astrology because material is still being rediscovered and translated. But uh, now we're at the point, or we're starting to get to the point where we have to figure out what the relationship is between the tradition, the older tradition, and the contemporary uh, or prevailing astrological um, trends that came out of the 20th century. So that that in and of itself will be a separate show at some point. Um, okay, so the, the last thing that I wanted to mention is that um, I'm thinking about one of the problems I think in doing this show over the past year is uh, Block Talk Radio is kind of not that great of a service. Um, one thing that's annoying is they use a lot of really annoying ads that they kind of throw into the recordings that they have on the side of the page and everything else, and that's bad enough. You can kind of get around that and deal with it to the extent that you're using a free service, and you kind of have to accept um, that that's the deal. But uh, when I took over the show a year ago, they started charging like $30 a month just in order to host uh, a basic account and where, where you can have shows long, longer than 30 minutes. Uh, so that's not working out very well. Um, I think it's a little bit too much to be paying for a monthly service like that. And I'm thinking about transitioning into just hosting the show entirely on uh, the traditionalastrologyradio.com website. So I'm in looking into my options right now as far as um, podcasting is concerned, and I would like to do these shows more often, and I'd like to become a little bit better about it um, and clean it up a bit. So if you have any suggestions or observations or experience podcasting or tips that you might be able to send me, then please... Um, drop me an email. Uh, my contact information is uh, either on my website, chrisbrennanastrologer.com, or uh, if you go to Traditional Astrology Radio, you can leave a comment there, perhaps in the comment section for this uh, show. But um, yeah, I guess that's it for this show. Um, hopefully, I'll be doing another one again before too soon. Obviously, I'm going to be out of town uh, next week, but perhaps in a few weeks I'll have another show, and uh, we'll see we'll see where the next uh, year takes takes the show. We'll see where the next year takes us. So that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening to uh, Traditional Astrology Radio, and I will see you next time. <laughs>